And thank you for those of you that are not leaving the room. Glad to have you in here with us. Uh, so if we've not met, I am Scott. I'm kind of your summertime pastor while uh, Ben is on sabbatical. And we're so grateful that uh, God's provided and you've affirmed his uh, time away. And we look forward to hearing and seeing about the deep work that God is doing in him and in Catherine, uh, their family this summer. Keep praying uh, because we want to see God do all that God plans to do in Ben's life. And then uh, we're in this unique season where the Union Hill family is worshiping uh, and fellowshipping alongside the Mountain Ridge family. And as you heard, Pastor Ray is not feeling well. And so uh, we want to be prayerful for him today. In fact, uh, when we conclude our service this morning, uh, if you're part of the Mountain Ridge family or not, and you'd like to uh, just spend a moment in praying for Ray. Uh, why don't you meet with me down here at the front when the service is over? We'll, we'll spend a moment praying for him in that way, okay? Uh, as you heard, we are in Colossians. And so I want to encourage you to open a Bible, turn on your Bible application, whatever you've got. And we're going to finish chapter 1 and move into chapter 2. And it will be helpful to you to uh, have the text open before you. And uh, as my wife has lovely demonstrated. There are copies of the scriptures on the tables on the side. So if you'd like to use one of those Bibles, you're welcome to do that. So um, unfortunately, I missed last Sunday. We, we were uh, wrapping up a vacation thing that we do annually with our family. But I heard some wonderful reports about uh, your special gathering and lunch and all that. Um, I watched the uh, live stream later. Uh, to, to check all that out. So uh, I, I just love what God's doing in our midst this summer. Uh, perhaps you understand why the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Are you glad? Is there a sense of God's presence that's touching, embracing, wooing you? Uh, I pray so. It's glad, gladness to be in his presence. Well, uh, as we're in Colossians, we're doing so under this idea, uh, what's true and what's false, because knowing the difference really does matter. And we began uh, our first week talking about what's true about you with respect to what does the Bible say is true about you, especially in contrast to what our culture says is true about you. Then we got into, uh, after that, what's true about Jesus there's confusion and there's distortion. There's uh, caricatures that happen around Jesus. So we've, we've sought to be clear about that. And today we're going to be talking about what's true about hope. What's the real hope that we have in life? This is a, uh, a bizarre time. Um, some of you have noted that since the 2016 election, uh, there has been a greater divisiveness, polarization, uh, in our nation than in my lifetime. Um, some have even contended for the duration of American history. You, you can decide. But uh, people that observe those kinds of things often point us back to the 1960 election. Predates most of you in the room. Uh, but that was Kennedy and Nixon. And even though there were differences in the personalities of Kennedy and Nixon, 
with respect to ideology and policy and things like that, there, there was a lot of commonality. There wasn't much division between what was going on with Democrats and Republicans in those days. Not so today. And just to reflect on that for a moment, uh, we have a real polarized pull going on with uh, what are we going to do about our economy? Uh, how are we to think about uh, economic viability and health in our nation today? Uh, what are the steps that get us there? There's a lot of differences about uh, what's true there. Medical technology. We're grateful by and large for how far medical technology has come, but it's come with a lot of ethical and moral questions along the way. And so what are we to make of all the things regarding medical technology? Just the most recent one around vaccines and vaccines that have been put through a, a, an accelerated process of approval uh, brought great division in our country and, and even into our churches uh, just in recent times. The matter, matter of education theory. What's it mean to educate? And when you educate the emerging generation, what are the points of emphases? And what's appropriate? And what's age appropriate? There are differences around the, the matter of human family. Uh, are we going to redefine? Are we going to uh, recategorize that institution? Uh, make it different from what it's been for thousands of years from the beginning of humanity? Uh, the whole matter of sexual and gender philosophy. Is it fluid? Do we get to decide? Or do we determine these things or are they fixed from uh, the creation of God in our lives? What's the role of government? How's government supposed to function? Is it supposed to be big and like a nanny and controlling all kinds of things? Or is it supposed to be small and kind of in a libertarian way, uh, don't regulate everything? Uh, and then the policies around poverty. What are we supposed to do about poverty? What are we supposed to do about homelessness? What are we supposed to do about immigration? Differences, differences, differences. And then when you go international, uh, we're kind of in a powder keg day with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's not just involving two nations. It's got a lot of nations involved and uh, particularly around the idea of NATO, uh, if there is more of a mobilization by NATO behind Ukraine, uh, Putin has been rattling the saber of nuclear weapons, uh, threatening uh, to do things that are way more catastrophic than, than what's presently going on. Um, Robert Gates, who is a former Secretary of Defense, has said, uh, I have met with Putin. I have been a one-on-one -on -one with him. I have looked into his eyes, and I'm going to tell you that's a man you cannot do business with. I'm going to tell you I saw in his eyes evil. That's a secretary of defense who said that kind of thing. And so uh, it's a, a nervous kind of uh, scenario. Uh, you guys still have it. I, oh, there it is. It's back. Very good. Um, about what's going on with that one little pocket of international conflict. And then uh, the UK has been disintegrating in recent times. Uh, of course, Brexit took place. Other, other uh, European nations are threatening 
to, to break apart from their union? And if so, they've been such a major partner with the U.S. in maintaining world peace, particularly in that part of the world, but uh, in other places. What does that mean for us? And then uh, we know all about terrorism. So we're in a new day where it's not just nations attacking nations, but it's ideological groups organizing and forming in such ways that they are inflicting terror and they are attacking uh, nations and people groups and so on. And a lot of that's uh, religiously driven. And uh, you know about that. And then uh, every few years we hear about the latest genocidal effort where entire people groups are being sought to be eliminated. We could go on and on and on. It's led... uh, people like David Gergen, who has served multiple presidents and um, been an advisor and a political commentator, it's led him to say, it's a confusing time, it's an unprecedented time in U.S. history. And it raises the question, where's the hope? With all this insecurity, insanity, where's the hope? to address this crazy world. Some of you have children that are growing up in this day. Some of you have grandchildren that are growing up in this day. And we wonder what's life going to look like for them when they reach adulthood. It's a nervy day. Where do we find the hope? And of course, a lot would advocate for uh, science. If we can just get certain diseases addressed, uh, if we can eliminate cancer, uh, if we can, you know, advance these other kinds of technologies uh, medically, there will be greater peace and tranquility. Others have contended for social engineering. Let's let's rework our institutions and especially our uh, family institution. And let's change what it looks like to be a family and let's redefine all kinds of things in that arena. Is that the hope? Others have contended for a redistribution of wealth. So let's get the wealthy less wealthy. Let's take some of that wealth and distribute it amongst all those who are more needy or even uh, those that have been wronged and oppressed in times past. Uh, Let's make reparations. Is that the hope? Does that fix those problems? And then others say, it's all about education. We have such a problem because of illiteracy and because of superstition, particularly religious superstition. If we can just get the majority of the population educated, then we'll be okay. And then still others continue to go and buy their lottery tickets. And it's like, well, forget the rest of the world. If I can just become wealthy... Uh, I'll just be able to take care of me, myself, and I. And I guess it was like $875 million yesterday for Powerball. I didn't hear how it turned out. Um, but millions, right, buying into that dream and uh, that kind of hope. Is that the answer? Just become wealthy. Get, have all the resources that you need. Well, because we're Jesus' people, we follow Jesus, we follow the teachings of the scriptures, 
we reject all these premises of hope. Our confession is that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That sounds crazy to the world around us. And it's the rock upon which we stand. Jesus. And what Jesus has done on behalf of humanity is our hope. Now, uh, to get at that, to unpack and nuance what all of that means, we are spending time in Colossians. And uh, just to remind, or if you're with us for the first time on this, uh, Colossians is a small letter written to a very small town, a church of believers in a very small town called Colossae, by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. He had never been with them personally. Um, and so he is writing to them according to stories that have been conveyed to him by a, a Colossian Christian leader, Epaphras. And um, primarily the purpose of his writing was to address false teachings and heresy that was going on in the life of that small little church. Now, before we uh, get into the text, let's remind ourselves of something. Uh, most scholars contend that Colossae was the smallest town with the smallest church out of all that the New Testament addresses. You know, the, the New Testament addresses several of the new churches that were being planted after the resurrection of Jesus. Point being, if this is the smallest congregation... And Paul has, uh, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, invested in their discipleship and their maturing in Christ because of what they can mean to the kingdom of God and God's purposes. Then there's a special word here for us, as for any of us that belong to small congregations. There's no such thing as an insignificant church, an insignificant gathering or congregation of God's people. No such thing. The divine potential for what God would do in our midst to impact a city or a region or even the world is just uh, beyond your imagination and mine. And so let us never take lightly that we gather with a small group. Because as long as Jesus is the hope and Jesus is in our midst, there are powerful, life-impacting, world-impacting things that God's up to. So with that said, let's get into the text as we pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 1. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. His sufferings were what? He's in prison at this time. And he's in prison because he's been living the gospel. So I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. To his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So as we get into the text, here's what Paul is up to. He wants his people, he wants believers to be encouraged. Now, everything that I began this talk with today, talking about the, the state of our nation and the state of this world and its chaos and its craziness, even in the face of that, God's people get to be encouraged. Because He's not just at work in us, redeeming us, transforming us, empowering us. I'll say more about all that in a moment. He's not only doing that, but He's doing a work He's accomplishing his purposes in this world. And so for our uh, knowing he is on the throne, he is sovereign. There is no power greater than his. He will not be thwarted. He will not be undermined. God's people get to be encouraged because of the person of Christ and all that Christ has accomplished and will do. And Paul says, you need to be assured about that. So yeah, it's a nervy world, but you don't have to be nervous. You don't have to be undone. You are in the hand of Almighty God. And there's nothing that can happen to you or with you unless he, in a divine purpose, allows it to be so. So be assured that God is on the throne. He's taking care of business. And therefore, don't be deluded by anything that others are wringing their hands about. All the uh, sky is falling prognostications. Don't be deluded that that means that the person of God and the purposes of God are coming undone. Because they are not. And Paul says this sense of encouragement, this sense of assurance, this sense of knowing the truth and not being deluded is all wrapped up in the mystery that God has now seen unfit, God has seen fit to unveil, to make known, to disclose. Uh, you have to remember all the generations before Jesus, uh, all they had were hints of what God was going to do since the fall. After Adam and Eve and what took place in the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity and the, the fracture, the rupture that took place in the relationship and fellowship between God and people and God's purpose to redeem that, to repair that, to rebuild that. Uh, he was giving hints along the way, uh, prophetic statements and so on, uh, letting people know, I'm... I'm present, I'm at work, I'm going to fix this brokenness, I'm going to redeem you and redeem this world. Hints, glimpses, a 
until Jesus. And then that mystery of what God was up to unveiled, disclosed, shown to us. And so of all generations, we are so blessed because we live in the time of understanding what has been the mystery of God through all these years. He has let us know uh, that it's all bound up in the person of Jesus. Now let's continue the text picking up in chapter 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now if you're not real acquainted with some of the New Testament language, you're like, how did circumcision come into the, the discussion? Uh, but for the people of God before Jesus, one of the marks of being a disciple or a follower of God was the practice of circumcision. And since the time of Christ, uh, that way of identifying with God is that we have a circumcised heart to carry on the picture of those who were before Jesus. And uh, that sense of identification with God is then demonstrated through the practice of baptism. So he goes on to say, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame. It's a great phrase. We're going to talk about it. By triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, what's all that mean? How is it that you get to be encouraged, assured, not deluded? What's the whole unpacking of the mystery mean to you? Well, he's going to expound on that in three ways. The first way is he's going to expound upon that regarding believers. What's this mean for you? The unpacking of the mystery. Why is it so encouraging and assuring? Uh, he will say these things in the text that we just read. Well, in first place, you've been buried and raised. Now, of course, this is in a um, symbolic way. Uh, you've not been placed under the earth and, and dirt thrown on top of you and things like that. But the picture is when you, by faith, renounced your own lordship over your life and yielded yourself to the lordship of Jesus and you confessed your faith in what he accomplished with his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul says that in effect put to death your old life and raised you into a newness of life that is like the life of Jesus. And that's why baptism is the picture of our identification with Jesus. We likewise are, we die, we're buried, we're raised up to a newness of life. And to be buried and raised, Paul would have you know, 
means that you are living with the same power that raised Jesus. So Jesus is dead after the crucifixion. He's not pretending to be dead. He's not in a comatose state. He's not swooning. He's dead. And the only way that he comes back to life is that the power of God comes upon him and life rejuvenates within him and he raises from the dead. And Paul wants you to get that picture. That same power is the power that's taking you from a former life into your new life. Now you have to understand the implications of that. Now you now have a power 24-7 that's beyond you to be like Jesus, to live the Jesus life. That's the truth. That's our hope that we live by his power. So somebody wrongs you, you now have a power to forgive. Somebody has need around you, you now have a power to be generous. There's all kinds of confusion and chaos around you. You now have a power for wisdom, for clarity, for direction, for staying on track or on purpose with life. You have been buried and raised and you have been forgiven. Now because you may have been forgiven for a long time, we forget how glorious that is. To have the slate wiped clean. For there to be no debt left for you to pay. He says you're debt free. And so because we're sinners, we all had a debt to pay before God. We had sinned against God. And the debt that we uh, had to pay God for our sins was in, it was not payable. It was way beyond what we could do. And uh, what Jesus did on the cross for us paid the debt for us, so we are debt free. You don't have to keep trying to do things to appease God, to make God happy, uh, to make God smile in your direction. He is already inclined to smile upon you, to hold you in favor, to want to bless you, because you're, you're debt free. I remember uh, when my oldest son was graduating from college and um, we went and celebrated his uh, commencement exercise and then we gave him a card which you know, had a little congratulatory note and a check whereby we paid off what remained for his vehicle. Now he'd been living on the college budget and he was trying to make ends meet and he was feeling the pressure, which we were glad. He was feeling financial pressure of being a responsible adult. And when we paid off his uh, vehicle, tears just immediately came out of his eyes. I mean, it was not some kind of pre-planned uh, response. He was so relieved to be debt-free, to be free of that particular debt uh, that it moved him emotionally like that. So do you understand what it means to be debt-free from your sin. You've been forgiven. And he says that you've been delivered from condemnatory accusations. And so if there are others that want to criticize you for who you are, how you live, and that kind of thing, you're free of that. 
But here, even more so, more importantly, there's an enemy to your soul. One of his names is accuser. His whole purpose is to undermine the good news in your life, the work that Jesus has done in your burial and resurrection, in your forgiveness, in your being debt-free, to undermine all that with accusations. And so as you're moving forward in the faith and you're moving forward in His power and you're being God's agent in this world and, and God's doing things through you and around you, there's an accusatory voice that shows up with some frequency to remind you of past sins, past failures. Oh, you think God's using you? God's not really using you. And He doesn't want to use you because you did such and such. Or you've got this kind of past. You've got this in your story. And uh, Paul wants you to know that you have been delivered from these condemnatory accusations. Now, if you're looking at the text, and this is why I encourage you to keep it open before you, he uses a phrase uh, that talks about how one king would overcome another king in battle, and uh, the winning king would remove all of the armor, sometimes all of the clothing of the other king or in the other leaders of the other nation and would bring them in captivity uh, to show how deposed of power they have been made in his victory. And that's what Paul is using to paint the picture of what Jesus has done with, the, with respect to the accuser of your soul. He has totally disarmed, disrobed, if you will, the enemy of our soul, the accuser of our lives, so that there, there's no power in what he has to say about who you are. Now, uh, these are points that we uh, engage in practices to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ and what our hope is. Because we forget these things. We live in a cultural narrative that constantly says something different, constantly says something false. And so I forget that I'm a son of the king and I'm a joint heir with Christ and I'm a co-conqueror with Jesus. I, I, I get caught up in this uh, craziness of our world and I forget these things. And so that's why I practice Bible reading. That's why I practice prayer. That's why I practice gathering with, with people like you uh, where we regularly worship because it continues to remind me and fortify my heart with the truth. So when the, uh, and I'll tell you when this happens most for me, it's, it's when I'm preparing a sermon. And I'm in my study, and I'm pouring over a text, and I'm praying, and I'm, I'm in some intimacy with the Father. And right in the middle of all that, an accusation will come my way in my thoughts. You know how crazy this is, that you're a pastor, that you're preparing a message, when you have this in your story? when you have these broken things that have been a part of your life. And right in the middle of it all, the enemy will approach my heart in those kinds of ways. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You, you ever have that kind of thing happen in your life? And so if I am uh, living well in the presence of God, I immediately recognize that for what it is, call it for what it is, that it, and that it's powerless in my life, 
and I go on to live in my debt-free, forgiven state, and I've been able to cast the enemy aside and do what God's called me to do. This is the way we get to live in resurrection power. And then he says, you're fully accepted. That is to say, uh, I just mentioned a number of religious practices, people call them, Bible study, prayer, gathering for worship. So you don't have to do any of that. You don't have to participate in festivals and um, uh, holy seasons and all that. Because none of that reconciles you to God. None of that makes you uh, right with God. What Jesus did on the cross is our hope. Religious practices is not our hope. Jesus is our hope. When we're using religious practices correctly, they just help us remember some things or keep us in before him and in his presence. But they are not the hope and they are not what uh, we are dependent upon. We are dependent upon Jesus. Okay. So he takes a moment to expound the hope with regard to believers, and then he's going to expound the hope with regard to Jesus. Look at, look at the text picking up in 2.9. For in him, speaking of Jesus, note this phrase, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. When you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the fullness of God, the fullness of deity. He is the head of what? All. This is who Jesus is. And we were reminded this a week ago, or two weeks ago. He's the full deity of God. He's the head of all rule and authority. There's no one above him. There's no name greater. Uh, the scriptures declare that if you don't recognize that in this life, there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, that he is over all. And so we can uh, be encouraged. We can be assured and be protected from delusion because of who Jesus is. He's the hope. Hope is a person, as well as what he has done for us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, making use of the names of Jesus to encourage our hearts about how he is all in all. And uh, I had a little slide snafu. So we're going we're gonna to try that again. Shall we do that again? So I'm going to encourage you to stand with me, and uh, we want to speak the words of Jesus because he is the focus of God's person. He is the fulfillment of God's purposes. He is the fullness of God's promises, and he is the fervency of our hearts. So if you will stand with me, I'm going to speak the words that are in simple print, and I'm going to ask you to speak and declare those that are in bold, underlined text as we remind ourselves about the person of Jesus. His name shall be called Supreme. Jesus. 
Messiah. Radiance of God's glory. Son of the living God. Firstborn among the dead. The first and the last. The beloved one. The anointed one. Lord of the dead and the living. Head of the church. Judge of all. Lamb of God. Word of God. Hope of the nations. Our righteousness. Good shepherd. The amen. The resurrection and the life. Overseer of our souls, Apostle and High Priest of our faith, the Great I Am, Chief Cornerstone, Bridegroom from Heaven, Heir of all things, Prophet, Servant, Power of God. Prince of Peace, God's indescribable gift, Son of Righteousness, Light of the World, the Good Shepherd, Fullness of the Godhead, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, and all of us, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen and amen. Please be seated. So, a quick word about believers, a quick word about Jesus, and then a final word about hope. As Paul gets at this nuance of what does it mean to be encouraged, assured, and not deluded. Colossians 1.28, Him, Jesus... We proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, can mean complete in Christ. So as he expounds on the hope, he's basically saying this, because we are that blessed group that has lived with the mystery unveiled, with the mystery disclosed, We've got to proclaim it. There are so many people that don't know, don't understand, can't comprehend this mystery of what God is doing in our world and how he's pursuing people for their redemption and for their joy in life. And so we proclaim it. And I hope you know by now that proclamation is not something that happens just from a platform. But it, it happens in all the arenas of your life, with your neighbors, with your work colleagues, with your family members, uh, not where you're particularly in their face, uh, but where you're sharing out of a heart that's being transformed, a heart that is humble, un understanding how much we don't deserve these things, uh, a heart that is embraced and warmed by the graciousness of God. We, we share these things, we proclaim these things, warning everyone, because there are consequences for living 
in falsehood. There are consequences to missing the true hope that God has gone to great extents to bring to us. And to teach everyone to maturity or teach everyone to completeness, fullness in Jesus. Wrapping up in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Abound in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. As he wraps up this notion of hope, he says, this is what establishes you. This is your foundation. This is what you build on. This is what edifies you. It builds you up. It strengthens you. It's part of the process of how God makes you, you in Christ, who is the hope of glory. So in response, he says, Need you to do two things. I'm calling for you to do two things. One is to walk in this. Live it. Walk in Jesus. So love people like you've never been able to love outside of Jesus. Be generous and kind like you're not able to do on your own, but you can in this resurrection power. Be forgiving. Serve. Worship. All these things, uh, you have a divine empowerment to do because you're in Christ, your hope. Walk in these things and watch for the philosophies and the traditions that deceive. Friends, never watch a news broadcast without discernment operating in you. Never, never read the various uh, philosophical positions online or in the papers or however you consume your news, your information, without the Spirit of God's discernment going on in you. See things for what they are, seeing them from His perspective. So walk in this and then watch to guard your heart against deceptions. Let me pray for you. Father, we don't want to take lightly the glorious good news that is our hope in Jesus. We feel the gravity of the moment. So would you impress freshly upon us Impress deeply upon us these truths of who you are, who we are, what the hope is. We pray for your spirit's guarding of our mind and our heart and your spirit's release of good news through us. In Jesus' name, amen.